but they've got to tap into it. It's a muscle that for a lot of people is really atrophied and weak. Mm -hmm. And so you have to practice it to build the strength up for that. You're listening to the Wholehearted Podcast, and I'm your host, Cohen Tan. I'm on a mission to set hearts free and inspire people to break out of their self-limitations to create the life of their dreams. Each episode, I speak to people around the world who live with vigor, courage, and authenticity. And I hope their stories can inspire you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hello, listeners of the Wholehearted Leadership Podcast. Welcome to another episode today where I speak to another expert and a great friend of mine from San Francisco. His name is Rob Volpe. Rob calls himself an empathy activist. He's an award-winning author, speaker, on a mission to coach and empower people to use empathy more effectively in their work and lives. He wrote the book, Tell Me More About That, where he draws on his years of market research, conducting thousands of in-home interviews with everyday people to illustrate the five steps to empathy. Wow, five steps to empathy. I think that is a topic that's very much needed in leadership today. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? Good, Cohen. Hello, and thank you so much for having me as a guest on Wholehearted Leadership. Fantastic, Rob. I see that you're wearing a Pan Am t-shirt. And so... Yes. <laughs> our listeners at home probably cannot see that, uh, but Rob and I connected um, around aviation um, recently over LinkedIn, and I was like saying, hey, I have a, have a real passion for aviation too. And um, we just hit it off like that. <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah, one of the many things we're discovering we have in common um, is a love of commercial aviation. And so, yeah, I found this Pan Am vintage uh, logo T-shirt uh, at an airport gift shop a few months ago, and I wear it every time I travel. And it's really fascinating as a conversation starter. People will come up to me and tell me that, oh, my, my parents worked for Pan Am or my Mom worked for National Airways, which is a U.S. carrier that was absorbed by Pan Am. Somebody else said TWA. And it's just, it makes them feel good. And it makes me feel good because they're feeling good. And I knew as a fellow av geek, as they call us, uh, you might appreciate me wearing this T-shirt today. <laughs> Well, Rob, Rob, I think we connected on many, many, many things. It feels like we're kindred spirits. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. We start with... a. Uh, uh, a common question that we asked our guests, what is your definition of being a wholehearted leader? That's a great question. I believe a wholehearted leader is somebody that shows up as their true, full, authentic self. Um, and when you're a leader, there's so many aspects to that. You've got to have the business mind and you know the acumen to make the decisions and, and drive the business forward. But you have to do that as well with humanity in mind, with the understanding that you know your heart connected to your employees and to others, you know your customers, your consumers, your clients, whomever it is. So you're marrying business with um, empathy effectively, uh, and help using that to make your make your decisions, and that makes you a much much more effective leader when you do that. So why is empathy important in leadership? You know, it's kind of like if you were to make, think of a, a dish that's, um, you know, Singapore street noodles, Dan Dan noodles. If you made those and you didn't have the spice in there, would it really taste as good as it does when you have all of the elements there? You can go through the motions as a leader without empathy, but you're going to be much less effective. Your staff, your team is not going to feel like they belong. They're not going to be as loyal. They're not going to be as willing or, or able to be innovative to solve problems and come up with solutions. Um, and so ultimately your business will, will fail or maybe not fail, but suffer as a result where if you take the time and do the work, to incorporate empathy in, you're going to see greater results. Imagine if you had less turnover. If, imagine if your team was able to take more ownership, solve problems, um, felt like they really belonged to your organization. 
it's really evident just as you're describing those things, um, how much further you're able to go. And so it's like that dish, whether it's something spicy like noodles or it's something sweet like a pie. Uh, if you don't have all the ingredients together, you know, it's, it's not going to be nearly as good. Fantastic. Well, I'm hearing you uh, as you're describing noodles and the sauce. It's like empathy is the thing that kind of pull everything together. It's like the, the salad dressing, right, that, that pulls yeah. everything together. Right, so you have noodles, and you have your your meat, your vegetables in that noodles. But it's the sauce that pulls everything together into one complete dish. Yeah, it pulls it together in that dish, and it's what makes it so much more enjoyable and palatable for the person that's eating it. So the same thing is true. Then, if you take that analogy into the workplace as a leader, if you're you've had to make a decision, let's say, and you need to communicate that out. You And we've all seen examples of this where a leader has communicated something and it comes across as very cold and not really considering the uh, point of view of the employees and the way that that message gets received. And then we've seen examples or think about an example in the audience of a time when you've heard a message delivered with more understanding. You can still deliver bad news, but if you're saying it while uh, um, seeing and identifying the point of view of the recipient, they're going to hear that message a lot better. Um, and that's then going to allow that message to be heard and then for whatever the, the necessary actions to, to be taken to be done so more kind of willingly or accepting. You're not going to get the same pushback or, you know, if it's bad news, morale's not going to suffer in the same way as it will if you're delivering something with empathy and, and some a touch of compassion. Absolutely, absolutely. We see a lot of examples of that um, during the pandemic, you know, um, companies that move themselves forward or even countries, whole nations that move themselves forward are led by leaders with empathy. While on the other end, uh, we see, uh, we've seen a whole slew of, you know, tech layoffs and, you uh, the, how the layoffs were done in such a cold, robotic, and uncompassionate manner. I think it's a great case study for us. It, it, it is. And um, I know one of the major tech companies laid people off and just like turned their computers off. Like they, they suddenly lost access. And from what I've read, it was because they were worried about security concerns because those people were working on sensitive data and information. But at the same time, how does that feel for them? And they're certainly going to pass the word on to their colleagues. And how does that, so how does, how does that leave the people that are left behind? And while I appreciate that desire to respect the technology and, and, the, and the secrets that are there, you've got to balance the humanity of it all as well. Um, because that reputational damage that you're going to experience from doing that is, can be pretty great. Absolutely. I think a lot of times uh, companies forget that employers are also, I mean, your employees are also pos possible customers of your of your services, for example, Airbnb, right? It's like um, your your employees are also possibly going to be booking a, a, a homestay through Airbnb. And I think, but on, on the note of Airbnb is a great possible, a positive example of how even the layoffs are done. There's a great yeah. company there. Absolutely. And then there's, um, you know, there, there are so many ways for people to communicate now compared to 30 years ago. So between, you know, services like Glassdoor, where people are leaving reviews of the places that they've worked, there's a permanent record that's going out there. You know, articles are stored forever on the Internet, social media posts. And and you have to think about that. I mean, and we still are seeing this um uh, approach where there could be more empathy in the return to office. And that's happening. That's a struggle that's happening in the mm -hmm. United States right now. Um, you know, companies are paying huge sums of, you know, rent or mortgages on property that are sitting mostly empty because people are working from home and they've, a lot of employees have preferred work from home or a hybrid arrangement and now you've got some ceos that are saying no you need to come back into the office but they're not doing it in a way that says look i understand 
the benefit that you receive from working from home and that flexibility and you feel like you're working harder because you know as soon as you wake up you start working and you're able to go to the, the kids you know pick up the kids from school or go to a a sports match or a performance or something or go have lunch with someone and not you know worry about it and, and get the job done however you know we're mindful as an organization of how our junior people are integrating into the company i hear that a lot where people that are new into the workplace don't really know how to show up and they need that mentorship so how do we actually provide that how do we you know ideate because there is nothing as dynamic and fun as my conversations have been with you cohen if you and i were in a room together live it would be electric and we would build even more on each other and it's that same way in the workplace and so you don't need that every single you know 40 hours a week but you do need it from time to time and so instead of just saying you must come back into the office companies need to be thinking about how to bring them back and use empathy in the way that they're explaining because when you do that you're like oh yeah i remember when i was 23 and at work for the first time and i had a couple of bosses and they kind of showed me through their own behavior and role modeling and maybe they pulled me aside and made it you know some suggestions but that's how I learned. And and now I can do that for the next generation. So that's worth me coming into the office a couple of days a week. You know, it's all about how you serve up the information. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, there's also an empathy that's needed, you know, nowadays when, you know, some, some of the, the current incumbents were saying, well, it's going to come back to the office because they were the good old days of, you know, happy hour, beanbags, brown bag lunches. But a lot of new entrants into the workplace during the pandemic, they have no context for that at all. They're like, good old days? What were the good old days? They have absolutely no context because they have entered the workplace in lockdown. Absolutely. And so how do you create that environment that people want? And it doesn't necessarily mean free lunches and foosball tables again, um, or, you know, big snack bars with every brand of breakfast cereal what's the next thing um and 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 that's the work that's really ahead and i think given the current kind of economic climate and you know we're still kind of climbing out of supply chain issues and all the other the the great resignation here in the united states it's a lot of work to do that kind of reimagining and i think some companies just don't have the um uh, I don't know if it's the stamina, the will, or they're just not understanding the benefit that could come from doing that. All right, I'm just going to jump right into the the deep end. In your book, you mentioned you have a, you have great empathy and a knack for storytelling, and they are your superpower. Did this superpower cause you these difficulties when you were younger, when you didn't fully understand your superpower? That is a great question. Um, Yes, I think, um, and I, I'm, I'm very open in the book in the first chapter about what my life was like growing up in Indiana, which for those that aren't aware of what Indiana is or where it is, it's a very conservative state in the Midwest. Um, and my family was not from there, but we moved in there. And at one point we moved from one town to another and all the kids decided I was different and started bullying me and teasing me. And and I think I didn't understand that because I saw the goodness in other people and I didn't realize how cruel kids could be at that point because I did I hadn't experienced that yet. Um, and I think there have probably been times, I mean, look, an empath is a magnet for a narcissist. They are drawn to us like the moth to the flame and um, we are empaths generally are not great at identifying the narcissism ahead of time until they've already kind of gotten into our lives in, in some form or another. And I have countless stories. Um, and I, th- <laughs> it, it, it comes up at work um, for sure. I thought I'd gotten rid of some um, eight years or so ago. And then all of a sudden another one showed up and you know a year into the relationship and it was like oh man 
I let another one in. Um, because there's all, as my therapist says, there are many flavors of narcissism. Um, and so you, you don't know all the time. And so I think that's where the empathy has, has um, that, that's the Achilles heel of empathy. And how did you um, deal with this and turn it into your superpower? Well, because I have empathy, I can get into the hearts and minds of other people and understand where they're coming from. And so once I was able to recognize like, okay, wow, this individual is a narcissist. And I was able, and I'm thinking about an earlier situation. Um, once I identified the narcissist, I was able to understand I did I read up on narcissism and how it shows up and narcissistic personality disorder and I started to use empathy and understand okay what are they looking for what are they trying to get from me so that I could then because I needed I was in a business situation and I needed to get that person out of the business situation and so I had to think about you know what were the steps? What was I going to need to do? And how was I going to get through this? And I was able to use the empathy to um, manage. Like once I had that awareness, I was able to use my cognitive empathy, my understanding of where he was coming from. It was a man. Understand where he was coming from and then use that uh, to get him into a place where he couldn't harm me or my business ultimately. Wow. And from then on, you're able to then own fully this power of empathy because it is now no longer an Achilles heel, but a superpower that you can use to serve other people. That's thank you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was a transition point. And it was shortly after that, that I started writing the book. Now that you mentioned That's, it. That is such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. Um, a lot of people in my line of work come up to me and say, hey, Cohen, you know, how do you find your passion? How did you discover your superpower? How did you lean into your, your, your God-given gifts? And and it's such a long answer to that. It's like sometimes I, I feel like, man, it's like you, you've got a lifetime to listen to my story. Um, like there's a whole lifetime of, of pain and a suffering that comes from that that the gift right like like you said like so you so eloquently said right if you don't understand your gift it becomes something that is an achilles heel because you end up attracting certain not so positive stuff into your life and um only when we have gone through that 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 pit right that that the rock bottom moment that really deep pain that deep suffering from it that we really realize that this isn't working out and we need to find a better way and leaning yeah. in with curiosity and forgiveness for ourselves, compassion for ourselves, compassion for others is the way to really transform that as, you know, the word passion, um, the, the, the etymological uh, root of passion is patty, uh, which is a Latin word for suffering, to suffer. So uh, very often people don't realize that um, to find your passion, you've got to be willing to discover your suffering and turn it into passion. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and, and going through what I went through in Indiana growing up, you know, it did unlock my empathy skills because I used that to navigate and I figured out how to connect with other people so I could kind of contain um, potential you know, risk and damage to my physical well-being. Um, and my sort of reputation, I suppose, because I would start to get to know other people and have empathy with them. And they were feeling heard and seen by me, which then made them have positive feelings towards me. Um, and then as a result, if something were to come up, a rumor or somebody wanted to beat me up, they were going to be less likely to get involved, you know, or, or maybe even would say, hey, leave him alone. He's a good guy. Um, and that's how empathy way back 45 years ago, 40 years ago in my life, um, how that, that all turned on for me. Um, and the storytelling is just kind of another gene in my family. Um, but because I'm able to 
understand people's stories and their motivations and have empathy with them, I can infuse that into my storytelling. Wow, um, this segues very nicely to the next question. I, I, and I think this question can really open up a lot. But um, what are some of the obstacles that are really stopping leaders from being more empathetic? Yeah, there's a, there are a lot. Um, so first of all, think about what leaders in society, in the media, in movies, have you seen that are empathetic? Like, that's not been the tradition. We've had 20 years of, from the Sopranos on in the United States, the anti-hero has been celebrated, the bad boy who just does what they want to do. And we're starting to move away from that. You're seeing that uh, dissipate as the dominant trend. But those are some strong messages. And it's not just current media. This is stuff that um, you know people have been exposed to for decades, you know, 100 years of men should be like this and leaders need to look like this. And they're very stern and authoritative and they don't show empathy and emotion. And women are very rarely seen in leadership roles. That's slowly changing. I would like to see that change even more. But, you know, it's it's a lot of programming on how people are supposed to show up and what they're what the workplace is supposed to look like, which is this very unemotional um, kind of robotic business first sort of focus. And, you know, and, and what does that do? Well, if you think about it in the media and the movies or something, that's going to create tension because then people aren't understanding one another because there's no empathy. Um, and then that creates for a good movie or story. You're cheering for the hero or the anti-hero or whatever. So there's a lot of things that we need to overcome, not just socially the media but also how we're raising our kids there's also then just the understanding of, of eq skills and empathy in particular and what empathy can do there's a lot of misunderstanding so my keynotes and all of my conversations help to demystify empathy so that people aren't afraid of it and so that they understand that it's not always about emotion that there's also cognitive empathy that people are born with it so they have a natural ability to have empathy but they've got to tap into it it's a muscle that for a lot of people is really atrophied and weak mm -hmm. and so you have to practice it to build the strength up for that and then leaders, there's some really fascinating data that I think you and I have talked about. Um, there's a state of workplace empathy study that Business Solver, which is a US organization, does every year. And last year they came out with data where I think it's like two thirds of uh, CEOs in the United States recognize that it's their job to build an empathetic culture. Yet about 80% of those CEOs say they struggle with being empathetic and three quarters of them so 76 percent say that they're afraid they're going to lose respect if they show empathy and that's because of all of that role modeling and stereotypes and and behaviors that are so present in the workplace in the finance industry on wall street and all of those kind of halls of power of business it's still very old sort of attitudes um so there's this tension that exists where they recognize they need to do it but they're afraid they're going to be seen as weak and they struggle with how to do it themselves and so i try to help people have that awareness of what it can mean to have empathy, how to use it, some of the examples I've given you, um, and how to then turn it into productive leadership. Wow, that's very, very powerful. Empathy is one of the pillars of the wholehearted leadership, uh, one of the five pillars of wholehearted leadership that I speak about in my keynote. And so this is a topic that I'm very, very keen to really, really dive very deep into. You mentioned just now that you know empathy is a muscle to be trained and exercised, right? Otherwise it atrophies like all muscles. How can people train these muscles? I know in your book you talked about five, um, five steps to empathy, right? But how do people really start to train these muscles so that they can, you know, um, just reverse this trend towards you know, a lack of empathy? Yeah, the first step really is self awareness. Um, 
you and I were talking before we the show started about the um, surprise that we've had as naturally empathetic individuals where you know we it used to be before we started to really study and understand this you'd be surprised at people that didn't have the awareness of how they were showing up or what they were observing and and you need to turn that on if you're gonna hope to get to a place of empathy so that you can build the muscle up it's like you wouldn't go to the gym and just mindlessly work out you have to be aware of you know your form and how you're doing let's say you're just doing curls with your your, your arms you're aware of what you're doing in the movement so that you don't cause injury so self-awareness is really key um the next one is courage and this isn't courage, you know, big courage to go, you know, run into the burning building and save somebody. It's not that type of dynamic courage. It's small doses of courage. It's the courage that you can find on an everyday basis to make a choice to do something differently. The next one is um, practice and patience. So practicing the five steps and having patience with yourself. Uh, and I'll get into the five steps in a minute, but you have to continually practice. It, it's not like you do one workout at the gym and all of a sudden you're an Olympian. They work and train and it's day in and day out. And they have days, some days that are better than others and they make mistakes and they might get injured and not be able to train for a while. But what they have is grace with themselves. And so that's the, the fourth action. You've got to have grace and understand um, that you're human. And it's about progress, not perfection. No one is perfect. I, I, always, I always ask people, like on a scale of one to five, where would you rate yourself uh, in your empathy skills? And I don't ask people to tell me the number, but I just ask them, like, what, what comes to your mind? And then I reveal to them that even though I'm an empathy activist, I give myself like a three, five, maybe a four on a good day. I'm never a perfect five. I always have something to work on. And that's about having grace with yourself. It's recognizing that you're human and that it's about making progress. So once you know all of those things, then it's about getting into the five steps. And these are things that show up in different ways, in different times with different people. And so uh, dismantling judgment is the biggest one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, like, I write in the book that in my own family, it's like brown eyed and judgy are the dominant genes because we're all born that way. And I've really had to work on it and I still fail. And again, it's about having that self-awareness and then the grace and then the courage to try it again and try it differently. But dismantling your judgment, being aware of the thoughts that when you're casting aspersion, when you're going to say something negative to somebody else, whether it's very sly or very overt, like that's not helpful. It, it creates the brick wall or the noise canceling headphones where you're not able to really see the other person. You can't connect with them and therefore you're never going to get to a place of empathy. So dismantle judgment's the first one. That's the hardest. Ask good questions is the second one. We need to be better at asking questions that are open, that are exploratory, that people feel comfortable um, sharing and, and answering. And a great exercise uh, that I, I often give to people is to try to take the word why out of your vocabulary, um, even for just a day. Pay attention to how often you use the word why. And the reason for that is we have been challenged by why questions since we were little and our parents asked us why we drew on the wall in crayon or threw noodles against the wall or whatever it was that we did. And we know very quickly we learn that if we don't give a good answer and we don't rationalize our behavior, we're going to get in trouble and we're going to be punished in some way. And so therefore, you're, you're constantly trying to, to stay out of trouble. Well, why follows you into school and it follows you when you're a teenager and in, you start working and you start getting asked why? Why are you late to work? Why are you late with this report? Why didn't you come up with the right answer? Why, why, why? It comes up in your romantic life with your partner, with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's just constant and you feel challenged by it. 
Um, and and for people that are multilingual in the audience, I've had this question asked, well, we don't have why. And I'm like, yes, but there is a question or a word that is used to understand why did you do this? Like, and, and it's, it's pretty universal. Um, so take that word out of your language, out of your vocabulary, use who, what, where, when, and how use, uh, tell me more is another great, easy kind of probe to ask somebody an open, good question. So that's step two, step three, actively listen, pay attention, put the phone away. <laughs> Social media can wait. Wow. Um, that's the third step. Like you've got to be present. You've got to listen. You need to notice the, the body language. Uh, pay attention to the things that are unspoken. If you're on a Zoom call or a Teams call with somebody, pay attention to the background. What's happening? Is there something that's going on that is maybe distracting them. I, we were on a call with Fibronia the other day and my cat Domino needed to be with me and in the moment. And so there she was and we brought her into the conversation a little bit um, because it was distracting me. And you guys listened to that, you were paying attention. And we took a moment to go, oh, hey, show us the cat, let's meet Domino and, and all of that. And then I was able to get her settled down and continue with the conversation. So that's a great example of you guys actively listening to what was going on. Um, using your intuition is another example of active listening. The things that you sense might be going on, but they're not always being said and, and feeling comfortable to just ask a gentle, good question to try to open them up and, and learn more. So that's step three. Step four, integrate into understanding. That's all about making room in your head that there are different ways of viewing the world and that's okay. We wanna stay curious and we wanna ask more questions to try to understand. That's the secret to integrating into understanding. And then the fifth step is using solution imagination. So that's when you're actually taking all the things that you're picking up and you're using it to ask the next question and to continue the conversation or continue working towards a positive outcome. As you face the challenges of living up to your own and others' expectations, you may sometimes feel lost and lonely. However, know that you're not alone. We are here to support you in leaning courageously into your heart's promptings. If you'd like more tips, resources, and to learn more about how you can live more wholeheartedly, or to book me as a speaker, trainer, or coach, please go to coentan.com. That's C-O-E-N-T-A-N.com. Wow, Rob, you give you give us so much to unpack over there. Um, earlier on, you did you did talk about you know um, listening, right? It's like I think listening is something that's so important today. I think a lot of people are so impatient, really wanting to you know to get to the next the next piece in the agenda in the meeting, and then we 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 don't have that patience. We don't create a space to really listen to people, and asking questions as well. It really goes against the grain, right? Isn't it? Um, from an education system that is predicated on having the right answers. If you have the right answer to a question, you pass with flying colors. If you don't have the right answers, you fail. So, I mean, we are so conditioned, right? There's so much conditioning that we have to unlearn for so many years um, that condition us to have that answer impulse rather than having that questioning impulse. Uh, that's just... Wow, there's just so much to unpack over there. I mean, where do we start? <laughs> and then you also talked about self-awareness, right? I, I think um, self-awareness is also, by, by chance, is also one of the five pillars of wholehearted leadership. Um, it's actually the first, first pillar. And I think self-awareness is something that is so... It's, it's actually less common than we think, you know. Uh, many people think that they are self-aware, but they're not exactly that. A lot of the times we spend our life just responding to outside stimulus. We are responding to, you know, um, that, that, that friend of yours who's having that holiday vacation in Cancun and you're, and, and you're like, oh, you know, why am I, why am I stuck here? Why, why am I not in the, in the beaches of Cancun? And then we are often just always looking outside of ourselves 
rather than really taking mm-hmm. that pause, pressing that pause button, and really looking inwards. And wasn't it, I, Cohen? I thought you were the one that used this term, which really resonated with me, and I've started to use it in the last couple of weeks. About it's not about reacting; it's about responding. And so when you react, so it's having that self-awareness so that you don't just react to something, but mm-hmm. instead res- a response indicates some thought, indicates some consideration is, is being given, where a reaction is very instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it was in our conversation with Fibronia where you, you mentioned that. So um, I think that's important for people to really understand and, and start to be mindful of how they're showing up. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think in the work that I do as well as a facilitator, you did mention a little bit about when you go to the the, the gym, um, you might sometimes injure yourself and uh, even world-class athletes will will injure themselves in in the action of practicing and training. I I mean, as an empath, I pick pick up a lot lot from the environment, right? Um, From I listen to what people say, I listen to what people are not saying, and I lean in with questions, invitational questions like, why are they not saying it? Is it because there's no safety? Is it because they're afraid? Is it because they don't know how to say it? And so I, I have, as a facilitator, as a coach, my empathy, my empathetic you know, um, faculties are really highly honed, um, but there are times where it backfires on me when I either misjudge a situation, um, I I maybe lean in and, and, and ask too, too much of an intrusive questions, and I have it thrown back in my face. And there were some bad days as well. I'm sure you have some of them, right? So the part you said about having compassion with yourself, being able to forgive yourself, that was so huge for me. Um, there, I have bad days, and I really do need to really have compassion myself because sometimes this empathy may not always be welcomed by people. What are your experiences with that? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I've definitely had some challenges where people aren't always capable of opening up themselves. So sometimes empathy, you're, you're being empathetic by just letting them know that you're there for them in case they need something um it's ultimately up to other people to reach out i think you know you can see when there's somebody in need and you want to actually connect with them um and try to support them and i think that's very important however sometimes they're not always they just don't have the self-awareness of how they're showing up and so you know this this empathy isn't about fixing people you know mm-hmm. and i think in our position we're there to help and i struggle with am i a teacher am i a coach am i a guide like what's the right word uh a sherpa like what what's the right word to describe the the role that i play because i'm really holding space and providing some tools but it's up to people to pick up the tools and use them themselves so if I can provide that inspiration, that spark, that's a good thing. I can give them some of the tools to use, but they have to be willing and ready. And when you get in situations like I know you have, where you're speaking to a large audience that because they're at a conference or they work at a corporation and I got to go do this thing, um, they're not always willing and, and able. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I was just doing an event uh, last week and it was a very small intimate kind of reading group discussion sort of thing and we were talking about dismantling judgment and during that conversation one of the attendees revealed some personal traumas that had happened to her like physical violence and where she ended up in the hospital and how that had then affected her judgment towards the perpetrator that's some heavy stuff to to suddenly be dealing with. And, you know, I'm very honest, I'm not a mental health professional, but we were able to kind of work through and talk about the context of it and the situation and um, some of the things that might be happening while also encouraging, you know, a therapist can really help you kind of work through those things. So 
um, yeah, not everybody's ready. Some people are um, hungry for it and it's hard in large groups, especially to kind of figure out. But the way I think about it is I'm holding space. I give people the tools and then it's interesting who comes up to me and engages with me afterward or reaches out on social media, um, wants kind of follow up information. Absolutely. I think what, what has really helped me a lot is um, in the past, you know, uh, in our eagerness to help people to achieve breakthroughs or transformation, we sometimes ask questions that, you know, challenge them a little. But what really helps me is really to, to, to pace that person. And that's where active listening comes in very useful and intuition, right? It's like you're able to pick up from their body language, whether they're open, yeah. whether they're they closed. Um, you, you listen to the things they say, the keywords that they say. Uh, what is something that are really important to them, and uh, and use that as an invitation, as a gateway to really um, and invite them into this conversation. And what's really helpful for me is to ask an invitational question rather than to ask uh, an intrusive question. For example, if mm. for example if someone is talking about something that you 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 think could be something deeper that um, that there's something that they are, they're not wanting to share. You could say something like, mm, I noticed that you're fidgeting. Can you tell me more about that? Or you could say something like, um, what are you uncomfortable about? Now, that can come across as very intrusive, right? Because they could right. just reply you and say, nah, I'm just feeling cold. The air conditioning is too cold. I'm, that's why I'm fidgeting. I'm, sh I'm shaking, right? So it's it's like a deflection sometimes. But <clears throat> or it, totally. could really be, it could really be that they're feeling cold. So I, I always ask a question that's more invitational by saying, what are you feeling really right now? I think that's a more you know gentle way of really easing into the conversation. It's giving them permission to share and they can choose how much to share versus that intrusive question where you've just pointed out something that you've observed that they may not even be aware they're doing themselves um, or feel like put on the spot. So it's all that intrusion and then it gets awkward if they don't answer because you've called them out. So you, you've kind of othered them and that's not always, that's never a good thing uh, to do with um, attendees of any workshop, small group, big presentation. I guess that's also part of my own journey towards being more trauma informed. I think this is a very fascinating topic that I think we can really go on and on and on about. Um, there's one question I really want to ask you. Um, what I'm hearing is that empathy seems like a lot of hard work, right? Um, it's we often think of labor in terms of you know creating a, a writing a report or of course um, um, setting up a room or lifting heavy weights in the warehouse. That's fiscal labor, but we don't often talk about emotional labor, and mm. empathy is emotional labor. It's hard work, and just as you need to have a rest um, routine after a workout in the gym, I think we also need to have healthy routines around, you know, recharging ourselves as well as really just, um, you know, just like a slow down, like a cool down a mechanism. How do you um, recharge yourself and what is your routine for cooling down, Rob? Uh, well, there's a sofa in the other room in my house that I will sit on with my husband and we will watch some TV that makes us happy. Um, whether it's a, a comedy or a drama, but just like a positive story. Um, I have three cats, they make me happy. Um, I'll do... Um, I go through fits and starts and periods of exercising. I, I enjoy that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different things. It depends on what's available to me and what I, I try to check in and figure out like, what do I need in this moment? Um, sometimes like yesterday was a hard day at work. We had some um, uh, HR actions that we had to take and as the day progressed, I took a candle and put it in front of me and lit it and just kind of soaked in that, um, the light and the energy from that and, and just tried to ground myself. I put on music that I have a couple different playlists on Pandora that are soothing or get me into kind of a certain space um, and allow me to recharge. So I try to be aware 
of what I need in the moment and, and what, and it's, it's like, I mean, it's like kind of dropping down into your heart. And if you, you're not having self-awareness, it can be hard to do this, but it's asking yourself, what do I need? You know, what, what is my heart really needing? My brain may be saying chocolate ice cream, but my heart is saying I need quiet or I need peace, calm, stillness. And then I can start to figure out what I'm looking to do to, to fix that while having chocolate ice cream. <laughs> wow, that's really, really helpful for me um, because I have been struggling with this for some time. Like, like what, what could really help me to to really wind down. It's like, you know, like a computer when you start up, you know, it's like you're, you're, you're worrying, you're firing on all cylinders, uh, your, your heart, you know, it's hard emotional labor, it's hard work, right? And um, and even when you exercise, you need to have cool down, right? It's like you need to cool down your muscles. But sometimes I, at the end of the day, either a facilitation, a workshop, or even just, you know, having a conversation, a very deep conversation, sometimes I just have this, like, big climb down, this like oh yeah big climb down and especially the now adrenaline the the adrenaline is real i mean we're you're you're really up you're on um yeah. you know we're not we're not taylor swift but or beyonce but we're giving a performance you know i mean because you're trying to engage and connect with your audience no matter the size and once that's done you do have to kind of ease ease it down. So in those situations, I'm often in a hotel and I'll go back to my room and I'll sort of sit quietly. I'll, I'll do something to kind of ease it. I may call my husband and, you know, or text with him and, and let him know how, how it went. Um, but it, it is definitely that unwind. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I remember I was in Virginia with uh, one of the library. I, I've done some training with some libraries on their staff development days. And I did one and it was like all day and there were 150 people and it was a lot of, of work. And I got to that night and all I wanted was the proverbial like Netflix and chill. And so I ordered some Thai food. I found a fun movie on Netflix on the in-room TV and I just, that was my night. And that's how I just kind of lowered, lowered everything, lowered the volume. That's nice. That's nice. When we do workshops in, in training rooms, hotels and you know, conference rooms, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of um, have a climb down because after a speech, you know, people come up to you, talk to you, have conversations. You'll be out in the hallway having canapes and coffee. You know, it's interesting. You, you made me think of something as you we were talking about like workshops and stuff. We don't, I don't always, I don't know if you do. I'd be curious to know, you know, there's, I, I do pay a lot of attention to the energy in the room and, and the, you know, things to energize people and get their attention back. But we don't do that at the end of the session, or I don't. Like you, you close it off. You might do like a plus delta or some sort of what worked didn't work. You leave them with an inspiring message. But there isn't anything that's energetically closing the session necessarily. Um, mm. I may have to play with that the next time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know this this idea of leaving people on a high. Um, I think it's a bit overrated as well. I think we need to not leave people on a high. Um, just as a plane has to take off from an airport, he's got to land. You got to land that plane as well. If you leave people yeah. on a high, what's going to happen is they go home, tell their uh, excited about telling their, their their spouses about, hey, you know, honey, I've learned this and this today, and uh, the the partner just goes take out the trash. Is this balloon that just burst, right? Yeah. No. Exactly. I, I'm just wow. This is. I can't wait. I'll I'll report back when I when I use this. Um, because I often will do, I talk about a curious breath and yeah. that's that, you know, between stimulus and response, there's time to, you know, there's a gap in neuroscience. And so a curious breath is that act of making space, just like your lungs fill up, you're making space between the stimulus and the response and you can make a different choice. But I think that that so I usually have everybody do that at some point during the when I introduce that concept is about halfway through. 
my talks, but I think to come back to that at the end would be really useful for people with a challenge to like, okay, you're making that space, remember what this feels like, and now make that choice to you know, be courageous, be empathetic, uh, and go forward. And also just uh, reintegrate back into yourself and uh, you still have got kids to pick off, uh, pick up from school and you've still got trash to carry out or maybe a carton of milk to buy on the way on the way back home, right? So we still have to go, to go back to our daily lives and we often forget that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we are talking in terms of workshop facilitation and speaking, right? It's like Because we are both speakers. But I think that what leaders can really glean from this is, um, as we are talking now about working from home, hybrid, I think we have to be very cognizant of the, the different mental and emotional and even spiritual spaces that people are in and out of on a regular basis and are being able to match that cadence, to match that, that frequency. Yeah, and, that, and, and I think while we were just workshopping workshops, um, what are workshops but meetings? Yep. And it is about how do you hold space for your team? How do you close those meetings as the leader? So you're not just going, all right, get at it, click. You know, what? what is that last bit? And I think for every leader, they have to find the thing that feels comfortable and right mm -hmm. for them. But thinking about, to your point, that energy that you're holding on to and that you're working with in the room and, and closing the circle um, because sometimes we end up talking about really difficult things and sometimes it's like, woohoo, we won the new, you know, new piece of business. Um, but you always have to, to bring it back to a close. And I think having some awareness and attention to that and trying different things, you don't have to do a curious breath, but maybe there's a, a saying or a phrase or acknowledging, um, you know, what people do. I, I actually read something and I think this is a great leadership tip. Um, Margot Robbie, the actress and producer, um, she apparently in all of her meetings um, that she has, she asks people and everybody in the room, is there anything anyone wants to say that they haven't been able to, to say or were you know, hesitant to say, please you know, let me know. And she holds space for people and opens it up. And so it, it, whether people speak up or not, it makes them feel included. And it makes them feel that they had a place at the table. And that's really important. And, and it sounds like she does that at the close of her meetings, um, which, you know, again, what a great way to close the meeting by making sure everybody is feeling like they had a chance to be heard. That is so beautiful. I think I'm definitely going to in incorporate that in all my team meetings as well. Sometimes, um, you know, as the leader of the company, um, all I do is say, hey, do anyone have any questions? Do anyone has any comments? And usually get silence, like, mm, okay. And, and I, I start to reflect on myself, like, did I create psychological safety for people to speak up? But sometimes it just could be that maybe they had some concerns, but they just, like, parked it, temp uh, you know, momentarily, and they, they just forget to come back to that. And I think that's yeah. so important. You talk about the importance of following your intuition and um, you're, you're an ENFP. I am an INFP <laughs> and, uh, and and we are NFPs, right? So the thing is, how can people who identify more with the sensing, it's like, you know, seeing is believing, give me the data. Um, how can they develop their intuition when this is something that could be uh, like an alien concept to them? Can I blow your mind with something? Oh, please. So I, I was talking about this with my therapist a couple of years ago, and he pointed out to me that when Jung developed the framework that became the Myers-Briggs test and the EF, ENFP, et cetera, it's, you're meant to be in balance and in the middle. You're not, that's healthy. It's not that you're supposed to be all the way E or all the way I. We do gravitate one way or the other but even the most introverted person i mean you stand on a stage and you talk to people and you run workshops that's pretty extroverted even though you identify as an introvert and i find myself like i love being up on a stage talking to people inspiring people i get so much uh, uh energy and joy and fulfillment from doing that but i also like to have quiet moments as well and i actually recharge more by myself 
then I, I'm not the one to like, I'm going to go to the street party and, and, you know, recharge my batteries that way. So if you're supposed to be all of this, if you're on that uh, uh, S to N sensing, knowing um, piece, understand that you actually have that other side within you. So it's self-awareness um, and start to, to find your gut. Think about the moments where your intuition might be talking to you. So it's not just about the data. You do need to have data in front of you. It's important. But what else is coming up? What's that voice inside your head? What's your gut telling you? What do you just kind of know? Um, and, and try, just try to lean into it and see where that takes you. Um, and know that we're all, you know, you're not hardcore S or hardcore N. You're somewhere in the middle and depending on the situation, you, you might pull into different things differently. People are using their intuition when they're walking down a dark alley and the hairs on the back of their neck are standing up. That's a physiological response to your intuition. You know, this is bad. This is dangerous. So we all have been in a situation like that. We all understand what that feels like. Find that voice, you know, find, it doesn't have to be fear, flight, freeze, but find that voice inside you and, and trust that. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I have a thought experiment as you're sharing, listening to you sharing. I think uh, this is a thought, just a thought experiment and maybe you can expand on that. I think the one way we can really develop our intuition is really playing games. Um, I think games, um, sports and games are, are a very powerful way of developing our intuition because um, intuition is about, you know, seeing what isn't there even before it transpires. Yeah. So one thing that my dad uh, did a great favor to me when I was young was to teach me chess. Um, so I played chess and um, I became fascinated by that. I went on to represent my high school, my college in international chess um, because I spent a lot of my time studying, reading chess books. And chess is a game where you have to anticipate, you know, 5, 10, 20 steps ahead. Um, you got to anticipate what your opponent is going to do. So... In, in every game, it's the same thing, right? It's like when a quarterback throws a football, he, he, he's throwing to a space. He's not throwing to a person, right? He's throwing to a space where, you know, your, 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 your wide receiver is going to be running, right? So it's the same thing in basketball and in all sports, soccer, badminton, right. tennis. Yeah, you're running, you know, in hockey, there's, I think Wayne Gretzky, a famous hockey player had said this. And so, you know, in hockey, the kick in the puck and it's going where it's going and you go to where the puck is going, not where it's been. That's, yes. and that's the sense of intuition. Like you, you have to anticipate. And I think, I think that's a great analogy. That is a form of intuition and understanding where it's going to go. So when you're playing chess, you're kind of, you know, there are a lot of different moves and you're, doing some anticipation you're tapping into your intuition for where do i think he's gonna go and sometimes you have data that backs that up because you've seen this person play a hundred times and he always moves you know i don't know chess well enough to say the spots but he'll move the knight in a certain place and you know that that's going to be their go-to move but not always and you have to trust um what your gut's telling you yeah, so there's a, there's a thought experiment for, for, for listeners at home. If you want to build your intuition, play play games, play board games, play chess, play, play sports. Drive your car. Driving is intuition-based too. Like you're paying attention to all the data, but you're having to kind of sense what may or may not happen. You know, you're looking at the, the you know, is, is that person going to step into the road or are they going to stay on the side like what's happening is very similar to sports i think too wow i i think i'm loving this conversation we can go on and on and on rob um but we we'll, as we're going to come towards the end uh we usually ask our, our guests uh, some uh, quick fire questions to end um so are you ready for some quick fire questions uh, yes <laughs> well even you're not ready i'm just going to go ahead anyways quick fire so you just Bring gonna give on. a sh short answer, uh, one or two sentences to this question. All right, what's the most powerful question you have ever been asked before? Most powerful question. 
Well, most recently, the most powerful question I've been asked was by my 104-year-old grandma on her deathbed as I was sitting with her. And she had read my book, and she is featured in it. Um, and she asked me why I hadn't come out to her sooner and why I hadn't told her more about what I was going through when I was growing up. That was uh, a pretty powerful question, and I, I had to sit with that one uh, for a bit. Wow. Who is a mentor or supporter who has made a difference in your life? Oh, there's so many. My parents, early bosses that I've had, um, the people that either taught me to look at things from a different perspective and the people that have taught me not to get my knickers in a twist. Great advice. Thank you. What is one of the most courageous things you have done in your life that has made all the difference? Oh, um, I mean, starting trusting my intuition to and the voice inside me to go out on my own and start my company Ignite 360. I was in a situation where I was offered an employment contract with a firm that I had been contracting with. Um, and I was looking at the con, I'd been working with them for a few years as a contractor. They needed to make me an employee. Um, and I looked at the contract and my word, the, the word em employee next to my name in the legal definition. And every fiber of my being was saying, don't do this. This isn't you. This isn't right. This is wrong. And I had to listen to it. And so that's when I made the decision that I needed to explore going out on my own and starting my firm. That was 13 years ago. Um, and had I not done that, I wouldn't have written the book. We wouldn't be having this conversation today. Wow. Thank you, Rob. What are the, the next the next project or the next um, exciting thing that you're working on moving forward the next couple of months? Yeah, the exciting thing I'm working on, well, I um, I recently moved out of the CEO role in my company to become the chairman and founder, uh, promoting uh, Lisa Osborne, my COO, into the CEO role. So very excited for that, so that I have more time to do more empathy work with different organizations um, keynote speaking, training workshops, because there's been so much uh, demand and interest in making the world a better place through empathy, improving empathy skills, that uh, I wanted to, to make myself more available to do that. And so we have. Congratulations. Congratulations. It seems Thank like your you. cat approves as well. Your cat is like yeah, applauding yeah. in the background. <laughs> okay, as we come to the end yeah. of our, our session, um, where can our listeners find out more about you, Rob? Absolutely. So they can find me online. My website is robvolpe.expert. So last name is V-O-L-P-E. So robvolpe.expert is my website. They can sign up for my newsletter. I put a newsletter out every two weeks that has some really practical tips about empathy, some insights into humanity, and some interesting stories and, and podcasts that I've been on. I will be sure to include this one in, in one of them. Uh, so you can sign up to that on the website. Also find me Empathy Activist on social media. Um, I'm pretty active on Instagram, also on TikTok. And uh, LinkedIn, of course, if they'd like to connect with me from that perspective. I've put out lots of content. Fantastic, Rob. It's been such an enlightening and inspiring and uplifting conversation. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Cohen. This has been wonderful. All right. Another great episode in the books. I really enjoyed my conversation with Rob Volpe because as a fellow empath myself, I can certainly relate to being bullied in school and how empathy becomes the skill I needed to develop to read the room so as to protect my own physical and psychological safety. I also really like that Rob shared not just about emotional empathy but also cognitive empathy. The ability to understand why people may be able to think the way they do. That is a different and added dimension, isn't it? And finally, I really found it so helpful that Rob broke down empathy into a five-step technique. First step is to dismantle judgment, and I think that's one of the hardest first steps to do. 
The second step is of course leaning in with curiosity and asking good questions. And you cannot do that until you have mastered step number one. Step number three is actively listening. Step number four, integrate into understanding. And step number five, using solution imagination. If you really like this episode, I highly encourage you to get a copy of Rob Volpe's new book. So tell me more about that. I'm sure they are available in the bookstores near you and on Amazon. To the next episode, stay wholehearted. Thanks for being part of this heartwarming conversation today. If you've enjoyed the show as much as I have creating it for you, I really appreciate it if you can leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you won't miss a future episode? To the next episode, stay wholehearted.